tomorrow we're having the men's camp out, and despite rumors that it might rain, uh, I don't think that was taken out of the uh, forecast, so things look great. Also need to continue to pray for Brett Nasworth and his family, and to remind everybody again that we've got a sign-up sheet out there in the uh, fellowship hall for uh, your information for emergency uh, contact information. And um, then the other thing is we still have room for somewhere between five and seven participants in the uh, on the Grand Canyon trip that will be in May of 2000, uh, 2017. So if you're interested, you can contact me. I can send you the, uh, the flyer and uh, prepare to uh, have a great, great adventure and learning time studying uh, geology of the canyon and how it supports the biblical view of, of uh, a young earth creationism. It's a tremendous opportunity. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Time for us to make sure we are spiritually prepared in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit. So uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will pray. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come before your throne of grace this evening and that we can uh, recognize that we have access to you uh, every day, every minute of every day, because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Father, as we focus our attention, our time uh, now in studying your word and trying to understand the implications and application of your word for our lives and in terms of our own uh, submission to government and governing authorities, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, help us think through clearly uh, how to uh, apply these things, um, especially because as the text emphasizes, this is a critical part of our of our testimony and not only before others but also before the angels. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. I've titled this lesson of Cabbages, Kings, and Nations. I hope we get to the nations part, but we have a little bit to cover uh, at the beginning. And once again, before we get there, I want to review quickly. I've got to just to summarize these the principles because this is so critical for uh, understanding uh, a lot of questions, political questions that especially have been raised over the last seven or eight years. I've heard these questions raised here or there uh, much of my life, but especially the last seven or eight years as we have seen uh, a number of court decisions uh, that have reversed the historic and traditional understanding of the uh, of the Constitution and uh, some divine institutions, specifically marriage and family, uh, that have been very much a part of uh, of American history and American culture and how we how it, it has been understood. What you may um, <clears throat> may not realize, just as a small glimmer of uh, of hope, uh, I read an article this last week that said that uh, was quoting, I believe, uh, Senator Ted Cruz that the Obama administration has had the least amount of success in the courtroom of any of the previous administrations, and that they have only been, uh, it's around 35%, it might be 36 or 34, but it was right around 35% success in the courts, whereas previous administrations under uh, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and um, George Herbert Walker Bush that the success rate in court for those administrations was somewhere between 65 and 70 percent. So that ought to give you just a small glimmer of hope that the legal system still works to some degree, and that is, that is important. So what we saw last time in this passage is that the believer has a responsibility 
to submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings as supreme, and then it goes on, or governors. And what we noted here is that this is submission for every ordinance. Now that, as we pointed out, doesn't mean every ordinance without exception, because there are exceptions that we have gone over again and again in the Scripture, and these are very important because they set patterns, they set paradigms that we can use for looking at different situations. We'll get into that as we uh, look at a few things today. We're to submit. This is the same word, hupotasso, that is used in terms of wives submitting to their husbands, uh, children submitting to their parents, uh, slaves submitting to their masters. So it ties all of these things together that we're going to be studying through the next uh, couple of chapters in First Peter. It is a uh, flip side of what Paul talks about in Romans 13. Now remember, Paul, even though there's debate over the exact dates, Paul and Peter are both writing under uh, Nero's reign. Nero is, is clearly a tyrant. Nero is, uh, especially in the latter years, very anti-Christian. I mean, this guy is not a good guy. There's no sense of the word righteousness that anyone could apply to Nero. And yet they are writing very strong statements that we are to be subject. It's the same word used uh, in Romans 13.1 that's used in, in, in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse, verse, eight, uh, verse, um, verse 15, or uh, excuse me, 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. It's the same word. And here it's to governing authorities. Three times you have this word. The third time is it's in italics, and actually it's a pronoun there that God says these, these, and then it doesn't um, uh, have a word there, but it means these uh, authorities that have just, just been there. There is no authority except from God. This is either according to his active will or his passive will. And even uh, evil rulers were raised up by God for, for a purpose. That's important to remember. They're governing authorities, and that adjective is a participle, hupereco, meaning a higher or superior uh, uh, authority. And so believers are to submit to every ordinance. This is the word creation. So it's talking about laws that aren't handed down by God, but they are uh, the creations, as it were, of governing, uh, governing authorities. The word that is used in the parallel in Romans 13.2 is a word that specifically means a decree or an ordinance. So I think that's a, that's a fair uh, representation. So we're to submit to the king or to governors. And uh, this is a word that could apply to procurators or proconsuls. It's not that technical a term. These are the ones who are extensions of the governing power, uh, and we understood that. So it's talking about not only the office, but also the office holder. Now, the reason I'm going back to that, and that's important, is because there are many times in life when we respect the office and we may not respect or like the person who holds the office. We may disagree with the person. You may be in a marriage where the husband is not a believer, where uh, the husband may be uh, abusive to a, a, a certain degree. I think that there is a point where uh, a husband can become criminally abusive, a wife can become criminally abusive, and that changes the whole the whole issue. You don't, there, there are uh, exceptions. We'll talk about these when we get into... Uh, get into that particular uh, situation and scenario. So um, uh, we respect the office, and we are to submit to the office holder. And that's important because, as I pointed out last time, that in the early stages of the Reformation, in the 1550s, this is before the, the, the Reformation Church even came to a full understanding of premillennialism, or a realization of God's restoration of the Jews to the land. Uh, this is roughly the same time as the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, when the big battle is over uh, justification by faith still, not more developed understanding of doctrines. There were two books written, I mentioned them last time, that emphasize two extremes. And they are extremes, and you, we, I pointed out that they're not biblical. Neither one of them represents accurately what the Bible says. One extreme was the divine right of kings that was being emphasized at that particular time. 
And it was the idea that Christians are required to submit blindly to every law and policy of the government. And that makes allows for no exception, and it's just this blind submission. And the other extreme is that God is for government, but he's not for anarchy. And in this view, the you can you can kick out, you can uh, arrest and try and behead uh, an, a king like Charles the First without violating the commands of Romans thirteen or First Peter chapter two because you are not for anarchy, you're still for government. You have used the the excuse of tyranny, um, and we might even say the tyranny is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you have used the excuse of tyranny in order to justify that action, but this is faulty, uh, faulty exegesis and faulty theology. The Bible recognizes that there are exceptions, that no human authority is a 100% authority in the place of God, and that it is not only the person in the office, it's not only the office, but the person in the office that is established by God. David Barton recognizes in a paper that uh, talks about this issue of was the American Revolution an act of uh, a biblical rebellion, and he points out that a crucial determination in the colonist biblical exegesis was whether opposition to authority was simply to resist the general institution of government or whether it was instead to resist tyrannical Leaders, in other words, the first option is it shows this distinction between the office and the office holder, and they their all of their rationales assumed that it was okay as long as they weren't opting for anarchy. It was okay to throw um, the person out if you thought he was a tyrant. Also, he says uh, uh, pointed out that they used examples. Of, uh, for a rebellion as people like Gideon, Ehud, Jephthah, Samson, and Deborah, but they weren't throwing off uh, leaders. They were throwing off conquerors. They were not throwing off uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish authorities. So we went through this last time, and we got, I got three questions, and I forgot that when we do this, we have to give a microphone to people. We didn't have a microphone. I couldn't really hear all the questions very clearly, and so I was kind of guessing at the answers because after you ask somebody to repeat the question three times, it gets a little bit frustrating. So I thought I would go back over these a a little bit uh, in order to uh, understand this. First question, this is actually about the third question into it, but I'm going to take it first because I'm going to put these in a logical order. And that was a question related to the framers of the uh, Declaration of Independence. They don't mention rebellion. Well, the reason they don't mention rebellion, as I pointed out in the answer, is because if you're not against government per se, then you're not really a rebel. That was their thinking, so they would never think about it quite that way. And so the question was, what about their arguments against the infringements of of legal rights as as citizens? So um, I want to switch slides here to the Declaration of Independence. And what I'm going to try to do here is, if I'm tricky enough with this, I'm going to... Uh, put this up in the changed spread this out over the whole uh, screen okay now if you read through the list of grievances I want to read the introduction here a little bit and I need to enlarge this so everybody can see it okay They start off and they say, but when a long train of abuses or usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them, that is the subjects, under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government. Well, the scripture doesn't support that at all. The scripture never, not once, when you look at Nero, Caligula, Claudius, uh, remember, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. I mean, none of these guys were, were really good guys. I mean, they were autocrats. They were all power was invested in them to the point that they viewed themselves as, as a god. So at the time of the writers of Scripture, 
And the time that all of this is going on, Peter and Paul are saying submit to these leaders, not because they're righteous, not because they're obeying Scripture, not because they can be conformed to righteous, but because their position is a position of of authority that God has established, and God also raised up people like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Sennacherib and others who were not righteous, godly leaders. Uh, this so this this was bought into uh, what they were buying into here was the natural law view influenced by uh, some of the writings of, of Locke and some others. So. Um, they don't have a natural right to throw off a government they perceive to be a tyrant. When you compare George III and what he was doing to what Caligula and uh, uh, Nero and uh, Claudius were doing, he, he's not a tyrant. He, he's really a good guy, comparatively speaking. So we have to look at this scale. That's why I say tyranny is in the eye of the beholder. Paul never looks at the Roman emperors that he's under as tyrants, and they were much, much worse than uh, than George III was ever thought to be. But then in that introduction, it, the, the declaration goes on to say, the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of absolute tyranny over these states. Well, absolute tyranny is the same thing that you had with, with the Caesars of Rome. Okay, so, so this isn't fitting the pattern that we've seen in Scripture where you have a governing king telling the, 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 the subjects that they are required to do something that the Word of God says they can't do or that they are prohibited from doing something that the Word of God says they are to do. And so you can go through, there's 27... 27 of these, and most of these are related in some sense to a background related to law. Now, what had happened, um, according to Edmund Burke, uh, what had happened in the previous hundred years was a lot of these duties and taxes had been voted into law, but they had not been enforced. And it wasn't until George III came into power, and because he was he opposed the Whig Party, that uh, he began to enforce these fully. That irritated everybody, but up to that point, they were law, but they weren't being enforced. Now, he was enforcing them, though, so they were, uh, they, they were law. You get down here, and the, I've highlighted the ones in blue that fit a biblical pattern. The others are all related to interpretation of of. Uh, of King George III's use of power, quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. That may or may not be good. But I can envision a scenario that has happened in history where troops are quartered somewhere, and the response of the believers is they just look at that as a missionary opportunity and an opportunity to glorify God. It may be a violation of uh, uh, private property. It may be a violation of good sense, but they turn it to good. God meant it for, uh, you know, the government meant it for evil, but but God meant it for good. Uh, So this one is kind of uh, one way or the other, but it seems like it's developed more the next point. Uh, The government protected those who were quartered by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. Now that's clearly a violation because you've got murder in the issue of self-defense and self-defense is a biblical principle uh, that is laid down uh, throughout this. Then you have, excuse me, a number of different points here related to uh, uh, various legal issues, which are not none of which involve the government telling Christians they have to do what God said uh, not to do, or that they are told to do something, uh, or not to do something God said to do. Now, you get down to these five that I've highlighted here. He's abdicated, he's, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. So what had happened was they had 11 or 12 years of negotiating, taking advantage of every legal option they could with the, with the British government, as I pointed out last time. Finally, the British government quit talking to them, turned it off, and then sent in troops quartered them. So it is a hostile action on the part of the 
of, of the British government. This comes under the, uh, the rubric of self-defense. So they are, um, the colonists had rights, and that's what all of these relate to. They don't relate to uh, the government of, of Britain telling them to do something God said that they shouldn't do or telling them not to do something that God said to do. It's a matter of self-defense. They're being basically attacked by the mother country. He plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, destroyed the lives of people. It, it's, they're legit, they, they have a legitimate cause of self-defense. He brought in foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely parallel in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He's constrained our fellow citizens uh, taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, to fall uh, themselves by their hands. And he's excited uh, domestic insurrections among us and endeavored to bring bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. The point is that there are, of the 27, there are six that fit a biblical justification for a hostile response to Great Britain because they are being uh, being attacked. So that gives legitimacy to what they were doing. And as I pointed out last time, it's a year plus. It's from April of 75 when you have the battles of, of Concord and, and Lexington to July 4th before they come to a decision to declare their independence. They were still working to work things out. And that's an important thing to, to wonder because today... I've heard so many people run questions that, well, when do we have a right as a state maybe to secede? Or if you continue to see um, the federal government uh, overturn and ignore the things that are sent from the, from, from the states, uh, when do they have a right to, to if ever, to, 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 to sever their relations with the federal, federal government? And the point is that it doesn't, it doesn't fit either the pattern of the... Uh, War for Independence or the biblical pattern. Now, if the federal government suddenly decided to send troops in and do things on that pattern, then if the principle of self-defense applied, then the state would have the uh, the right to do that. But that's not what's going on here. So let me go back to the slide. <clears throat> Twenty-one of the twenty-seven reasons listed relate to allegations of tyranny. But the biblical issue is how do these infringements of rights relate to the principles of Scripture that we have studied? What we've studied is the government's not doing any of those things. They're not forcing them to violate their obedience to God in any way. Second, six of the 27 reasons relate to self-defense, which is a biblically sound rationale. So that gives us a solid rationale. Now we go to question number two. What about the constitutional provision of the... uh, of the Tenth Amendment. This is a long question, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read it because this was well articulated. Uh, John asked this question last week, and he says, uh, "My question is basically how we are to interpret Romans 13:1 to 17." Um, uh, in my original question, were our founders justified in defiance of British tyranny? Now, defiance started before 1775. Uh, that's why I said defiance really wasn't a good word um, last time because it implies certain things. It was whether or not they were submitting or not. Um, and he said the second part of my question was that um, it's whether there's a biblical support for the constitutional principle set forth in the Declaration of Independence regarding the right of the people to alter, abolish, or dissolve the pol- political bonds between the two parties when there has been an infringement of the inalienable God-given rights of one party by the other. And that's not, that does not fit a biblical pattern, okay? Because that was happening in the Roman Empire. That was happening with Caligula and Claudius and Nero. They were infringing what we would uh, say were inalienable rights. So that, that doesn't fit the biblical pattern. Um, uh, he goes on to say, um, I take that to include infringement of states' rights by the federal government. As the author of the Declaration, later of the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions, Thomas Jefferson was an eminent proponent of restraining federal power by the use of state power, certainly. He taught that based on the on authority granted to the states by the Tenth Amendment, 
Let me put the Tenth Amendment up here on the screen. Um, we're done with the Declaration. Here's the Tenth uh, Amendment right here. The powers not delegated by the, uh, to the United States by the Constitution, in other words, the powers that aren't delegated specifically spelled out by the Constitution, saying these are the powers that go to the federal government, uh, nor prohibited by it to the states, that is, it doesn't also say that the states can't do it, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. That's, that's, in, that's very important. The federal government only has the powers from the Constitution that are specifically delegated to the federal government. Everything else goes to the state, and that's how the founders uh, established this. So let me go back to what, what John was saying. Um, uh, talking about Jefferson, he taught that based on, on authority granted to the states by the Tenth Amendment, state authority outranks the powers, I think outranks is too strong of a word. State authority outranks the powers granted by, um, outranks the powers granted to the federal branches of government and everything except the few and enumerated powers listed in Article 1, Section 8. He taught that states have the constitutional right to, right to restrain, um, correct, reprove, and rebuke violations of the Constitution. Certainly, Jefferson thought it so important that he made it a national issue, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to skip some of this. So the question is whether this is a violation of the biblical command to subject to governing governing authorities. Our founders made the U.S. Constitution the rule of law and the federal government the servant of the states, not the ruler. Therefore, are citizens of each state fulfilling the biblical mandate to submit to governing authorities when they obey the um, to submit to governing authorities when they obey their local and state laws and ignore federal violations of the U.S. Constitution. You indicated that so far the states have not availed themselves of their Tenth Amendment powers to defend the citizens. Does that mean that citizens of the various states must obey federal laws until the uh, state legislatures do their job and block federal intrusions in violation of the Constitution? Well, I, um, you know, had to use one of my uh, uh, helplines and call in a little assistance from a legal expert. So Bob Garrett is the... Uh, um, uh, chairman of the board for a lawyer and chairman of the board for the uh, uh, Dean Bible Ministries. He's also a firm believer in uh, in the Tenth Amendment and in constitutional rights. But we have to understand what's happened in federal federal law. He says, first of all, he agrees that if there's a conflict between state law and federal law, it should be fought and resolved in the courts. That's the place of battle. It has to be fought and resolved in the courts. He gives one example for that, and that was a case in South Texas where Judge Andrew Hainan, uh, who was a U.S. District Court judge in Brownsville, uh, made a ruling that successfully thwarted Obama's policy of a giving complete amnesty to all aliens. Uh, that's, that's important. There's still judges who are functioning correctly and blocking things that are unconstitutional. He makes a second point. He said that it is clear to me that the Founding Fathers intended the Tenth Amendment to serve as a check and balance to the federal government and that any powers not expressly granted to the federal government was reserved in the states. Then he gives a couple of really good examples. He says, what do you do then when one state recognizes same-sex marriage and another does not? The U.S. Constitution requires each state to give full faith and credit to the laws of another state. What do you do when the transportation laws of one state require uh, an 18-wheeler to have a width of a certain amount and another state has a different measurement? Because of the uniformity in, uh, and interstate commerce, because of uniformity in interstate commerce, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that federal motor vehicle laws trump state law. In fact, he says, I think the Founding Fathers intended for the states to be sovereign and independent. However, after generate this is a key statement, after generations of case law precedents from the U.S. Supreme Court, it has been decided that the federal government is superior over the states, except in very rare cases. Now, we may disagree with all those interpretations, but that's the law of the land, whether we like it or not. 
And we can go back and argue Madison versus Marburg and all these historical cases, but the reality is with 175 years of case law, that's been settled. A lot of state rights have been were settled on the bloody fields of Antietam and Gettysburg and Pittsburgh Landing and Chattanooga and Chickamauga and many other battles. And that's that's all in the past. We're not living in 1800. We're living in 2015 with a whole body of law that doesn't recognize original intent, except in very rare instances, sad to say. He says, um, and then uh, I'm going to summarize this a little bit differently. Uh, I mean, just just for time's sake. Um, my second point is that unless the law is involved, okay, so when we're looking at federal law versus state law, and you say, well, there's a conflict, I like the state law better, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to obey that and I'm not going to obey the federal law. Bob made the comment that he doesn't know of anything where that exists. He doesn't really envision that right now. Um and I raised the issue I said what happens if we get a president that by executive action wants to enforce certain gun control laws? Well, then it's the right of the attorney general of the state of Texas to challenge that in court. It is a court decision and it has to be worked and taken through the courts until you get final, final resolution. And I'll deal with, well, if it goes the wrong way, what do you do then? Okay. Um, so my first point was this means that states need to fight. But if the representatives and leaders and judges do not fight, they just succumb, then this will lead to a collapse of, of, of this whole principle of states' rights and the Tenth Amendment becomes nullified through disuse. That's what has happened through 150 years of case law has virtually nullified uh, the Tenth Amendment. Very, there are still a few people who want to fight it, but it's uh, not that they shouldn't, but it is not a winning battle. They should fight it as much as they can, though. Second point I'm making is that unless the laws at issue Involve, uh, are, are forcing a believer to do something God forbids or prohibiting a believer from doing something God commands, then physical rebellion is not authorized. That doesn't fit the pattern of Scripture. Third point, believers might choose to resist in order to provide a legal case to challenge the constitutionality of the law. That is totally within your right as a citizen. You can say, I think this law is unjust. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to disobey it and so that we can make a truly a federal case out of it. Um, but you must be willing, like Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, you must be willing to take the legal, criminal, and financial consequences of that action. If you're going to disobey the federal law, you've got to be willing to pay the price. They were willing. They said, we're not going to bow down to the idol, and uh, if you're going to kill us, fine. Uh, God may rescue us. He may not, but we're going to do the right thing. Okay, so you're willing to take the consequences. So that's applying the principle of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and uh, Hananiah. So... Fourth point, by all means, every legal means necessary must be followed. You know, that's what the, that's what the um, colonial governors were doing. They were going to the court. They were uh, negotiating with the king. They were doing everything they possibly could. Uh, they were not resorting to some sort of uh, radical action right off the bat. Uh, so use every legal means necessary. And once, but once the system becomes perverted by the law, okay, see, that's what's happening is the Supreme Court is changing the meaning of the law. Once the system becomes totally perverted by uh, reinterpretation of the law, there is still no biblical basis for rebellion unless you go back to those basic biblical principles. In fact, the judgment that comes, uh, it, it may even be that the, the judgment that comes on a nation as a result of the overturning of freedom in that nation might be God's judgment. If the people are not willing to follow biblical, and that's where we are today. This, that's my fifth point, is this nation is demonstrating that the majority in this culture 
even among evangelicals, no longer truly honor and obey the word of God and are thus ripe for divine judgment. And you go back to the pattern that Jeremiah talks about, and I uh, referred to several passages la- last week, that Jeremiah gives them, uh, they come to Jeremiah and they say, well, what does God tell us to do? Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, and uh, what does God say to do? And, Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Jeremiah said, God says to just surrender. If you want to have peace and you want to have long life and you want to be blessed by God, surrender you, and give up. Don't, don't fight it. And they were nationalists and patriots, and they said, we're not going to do that. So they disobeyed God, and they were slaughtered, and their families were slaughtered, and their kids were hauled off into, into, into conquest because they disobeyed God. Sometimes it's, it, God is saying, you know, you violated my principles, you're going down in judgment. And if you fight it, uh, you're, you're on the wrong side of, of, of history. You're on the wrong side of the plan of God. And the Israelites certainly were. So then what do you do? Because we have example. This was Mark's question. When are believers biblically allowed to resist government in a situation where a leader gains that position through illegal means, changes laws once in power in order to become a dictator or grossly abuses power? Well, you know, let's take the example because the second part of his question had to do with Hitler in World War II. Hitler came to power through legal means. He manipulated the law. No, you can't say that. You, 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 he, he manipulated the law, but it was all legal. He went through loopholes, all of that, but he got into power, and then he, once he was given total power, uh, when, when Hindenburg did that, uh, once he had uh, total power, he had total power. And now you've got a problem. Are you going to obey him or not? And so uh, you've got a, several options. Option number one is leave the country, which a lot of people did. They saw it coming, and they got out. They took that option. Some people didn't have the right foresight. Some people didn't have the money. Uh, you've heard me talk about uh, my first-grade Sunday school teacher, Ursula Kemp, who got, whose family got out. She was a teenager at the time, and they got out just about five or six months before World War II broke out. They were from uh, Breslau, which was in West, uh, Eastern, far eastern Germany, and they got out. They had about $5 in their pockets. And, and the whole family, and they barely got out, and they got to Shanghai, where they they sat out the war and ovate, uh, 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 avoided being in the heart of the Holocaust. So they left. Others, another option is to openly rebel and be quashed or killed. But in the scenario that that uh, Mark set up in that question, is when it gets to that point, the government has overwhelming power. Now, let me tell you something. I'm a firm advocate of the Second Amendment, and the reason that we have the Second Amendment is so we can protect ourselves against government troops. But you're sitting there, and I know a lot of you, and you have uh, firearms, and you can protect yourselves. But when suddenly some SWAT team that has fully automatic weapons busts in your front door, and by the time they come through your front door and get to your master bedroom, because they've already been able to use infrared uh, technology to determine wh- exactly where the warm bodies are in your house. You've had three seconds to respond, and you're barely awake, and you think you're going to grab your Glock or your AR or your shotgun. You're going to be dead instantly. Uh, the federal government has all ki- kinds, and, and, and police departments, law enforcement, have all kinds of weapons you're not allowed to have legally. I mean, this idea that we can defend ourselves, I mean, we hear this talk, I can defend myself. No, you can't. And what would happen if we get to that point? I hate to say this. It's going to burst a lot of bubbles. What's going to happen if we get to that point is a lot of people who talk a big talk right now are going to be taken down one person at a time because there's not going to be a place where everybody's going to make it to, to you know some last stand. They're going to be hit in the middle of the night, first one person, then another, and those families are going to be made examples of. This is the kind of thing that happened in, in, in Hitler's Germany. And the next thing you're going to decide is, well, maybe maybe I just don't want to take a stand because I want to live. And I think that's what a lot of people are going to do. So you can openly rebel, and you'll be quashed or killed or sent to a concentration camp. And then uh, third, you can quietly live your own life and pray to God that you will have opportunities to witness and opportunities to do the right thing. And like many in Germany and in Poland did, secretly obey God, and they protected the Jews, even at the risk of their own life. 
and they protected others that were enemies of the state. This is the midwife option, Exodus chapter 1. Uh, this is the midwife. The, the, the Pharaoh said, I want you to kill, to kill all, the, uh, all the male babies that are born. And they said, well, we never got there in time. They were, they were born and they were our day, and we just missed it. We never had an opportunity to kill any of those boys. So they're, they're protecting. That's the midwife option. Then if your ass are pressed on that, then you can take the Rahab option and lie about it because you're protecting life. So that's another option. But if you're caught, like many were, there were many um, righteous among the Gentiles. Those were Gentiles who protected the Jews and hid them on their property, hid them in their houses during during World War II to protect them from, from the Nazis. There were many that were found out, that be, were betrayed, and um, they paid the consequences. The Jews that they were hiding were taken to a concentration camp, and they were sent to a concentration camp. And there were many righteous among the Gentiles that went up in smoke in Auschwitz and other concentration camps. So your options are to live your life secretly, and if you are protecting life, which is an extension of the self-defense principle, then you... uh, you, you, you're willing to take the loss of life, take the punishment that comes, just like uh, Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, and Daniel did. Uh, the other question is, were the, was the German military officers like Stauffenberg uh, correct in their plan to attempt to assassinate Hitler during World War II? I think so because of the extension of self-defense. By taking out Hitler, I think that it is uh, arguable that that would have ended the Holocaust, that the Nazi government would not have survived uh, without him. He was the glue that held it together. And I think that's an extension of uh, protecting the lives uh, of, of the innocent. So, and then the fourth option is to take a stand against the rulers and obey God rather than man and just take what comes. And this is what we see in Scripture. I want you to turn to Acts 4. Acts 4. And let's review what happens with Peter and John. This is, this is so, so important. They're, they're brought before the unrighteous, hostile, arrogant Sanhedrin because of what they, the miracles they perform, specifically the healing of the lame man in the temple, and the miracles that they have been performed, and they have been uh, very successful in preaching the gospel, and many people have been uh, Converted to trusting in Jesus as, as the Messiah and believing on the resurrection of the dead. In fact, the second time, which mentioned that about 5,000 men, not counting all of their families, 5,000 men were saved. And so they come to the um, come to the Sanhedrin, and they have this interchange. And Peter gives them a mini sermon, starting in verse eight, and he emphasizes in verse twelve: "There is no salvation in any other." For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the Sanhedrin is, uh, recognizes their boldness and perceives that, uh, verse 13, that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled, and they realized that they had been, been with Jesus. So they have to put together a, a plan. And so they put together a plan. They, com- uh, they have a little uh, uh, conference and conspiracy deciding what they're going to do with Peter and John. And so they called them in in verse 18, and they said they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they're prohibiting them from doing something that Jesus has specifically told them to do. So that, again, fits the pattern that we established in all the examples we see in Scripture. But in Acts 4.19, we see Peter and John's response. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We have to do what God's told us to do. So what happens? Well, they don't like it. The people are too much on the side of Peter and John so that they, they don't do anything to him at that point, and they reprimand them. And they threatened them, verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since the people are all glorified God for what had been done. Then we get into chapter 5, and we skip down to about verse 
17, and again, um, we read the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, uh, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Why? Because Peter and John are out there continuing to preach the gospel. They're doing what God says to do. And um, so they laid hands on them. That's not the ordination type of laying on of hands. They arrested them and put them in a common prison. But at night, verse 19, at night an angel of the Lord, at 519, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, so this is a divine mandate, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So they're commanded again, command reinforced, go give them the gospel. And so then we continue to read down through the, through the story, and they're uh, arrested, they're tried, uh, all of these things go on, and, and then um, uh, they, they again, uh, Peter um, says in verse, we get down to verse 27 to 29, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, uh, saying, did we not strictly command you to teach in this to not not to teach in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And then in verse 29, which you should have underlined, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So this is a direct violation of, of God's command. That's what the Sanhedrin was doing. And now they're trying to decide what they're going to do. Uh, Gamaliel comes in and says, uh, gives them some wise advice and says, you guys need to recognize if this is from God, you can't stop it. If it's not from God, it's not going to have any impact. Uh, so keep away from these men in verse 38 and leave them alone. But what the Sanhedrin did, if you follow their main flow of action in verse 33, when they heard this, they're furious and they plotted to kill Peter and John and the apostles. And then you get down to verse 40 after Gamaliel gave him that advice, and they agreed with him, and when they called the apostles in, they beat them. So if you're going to do what God wants you to do, you have to be willing to suffer the consequences. And that may be financial, that may be legal, uh, it, it may be criminal. Uh, then in verse 42, what did, what did they do? Or verse, verse, after they were beaten, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So what did they do? They went to the temple and started speaking in the name of Jesus. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. See, that's the pattern. What did Paul say? Paul said, I determined to know one thing among you, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What will happen if this government continues to turn against Christianity? Uh, we will become a minority, those who are Bible believers, and it will be a difficult, difficult time. And yet we have to keep the focus on what the priority is, is that we are to be witnesses for the gospel. We are not to be warriors for the Constitution. Now that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but that's not what the priority is for us as a believer. That doesn't mean you shouldn't fight it, but it's not the priority. They're not competing priorities, okay? But that's the priority is the gospel. The priority is not the Constitution. That's number two. The Word of God is number one. We have to keep that as, as the focus. What are you going to do if they come for your guns? Are you going to put up a fight? I mean, this is a tough question. I don't know the answer, how, what I'll do personally. I know what I would like to do, but is that my sin nature? Are you going to put up your fight, and that's it, end, end of the game? Or are you going to give them up so that you can continue to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and give people the gospel? Those are what the issues are going to, may come down to. And it's not easy, it's not something we want, but we have to stick with what the Word of God says. And the Word of God doesn't authorize uh, rebellion other than in specific, uh, specific uh, situations. Now, what I want to talk about as we continue this, talk about obedience to authority, 
is we have to go back to something that is really being lost and assaulted today, and that's the understanding of the divine institutions. These five divine institutions are clearly set forth in Scripture. This is a summary of what the Scripture teaches of what God has established for the social, political success of the human race to preserve and to protect and provide order for uh, the human race. First of all, the institution of individual responsibility. There is an authority in that divine institution. That is, we are all accountable to God for our decisions and for our actions. The second divine institution was marriage. God first created the man. Second, he created the woman to be his assistant, to be his helper. And the authority in the team is the husband. Third, there's a family authority. Family was envisioned from the beginning. They were to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. That's the foundation. It's before the fall. It's envisioned. They did not have children, though, until after the fall. But the family authority is the parents. They're the ones who are in charge, not the children. But I don't have time to read this this, this article here, but it is an article about a new book that has come out called Political Correctness and the Destruction of Social Order, Chronicling the Rise of the Pristine Self. And it is a book review. This is a, a, a great article dealing with all the new, the new term. I love it. The new term for the up-and-coming generation are the snowflakes because they live in their own little, uh, they live in their own little bubble and they think everything has to be perfect and everything's going to be pristine and they're never going to be hurt or harmed. Nobody's ever going to disagree with them. And it's because they've got a, a couple of helicopter parents who spoil them rotten and protect them from seeing the evil in the world and understanding the evil of the world and teaching them about why there's evil in the world and that people are going to disagree with them. People are going to be mad at them. People are going to say horrible things about them. And they so protect them, and now they go off to school, and they have to have some safe space. And when they go to someplace like University of Chicago, which says you're at the university and there's not going to be a safe space because we discuss all kinds of ideas here, they get threatened, and they want to revolt against it. So we've we've... Raised, reared a whole generation. You can read about a lot of articles on snowflakes in England and here. Uh, they're, they're pampered. They're pansies. If World War III breaks out, we're going to lose because this generation doesn't have what it takes to swat a fly because of the parental failure. Fourth divine institution after the fall is government. It is primarily judicial in, in its basis. Authority is determined by the form of government. So there's many different kinds of government. In fact, the, the perfect government that's going to come is going to be a monarchy because the person who is on the throne is a perfect person. You will never have perfect government unless you have perfect governors. And until we have someone who is without sin in the place of the government, Government will always succumb uh, to corruption and evil. And then the fifth divine institutions is nations, the establishment of nations, and the authority there is, um, is God, Acts 17. So the first three are pre-fall, and they're designed to promote the productivity and advance civilization. The second two came after the fall, and they're designed to restrain evil. Okay, that's part of the purpose of human government is to restrain evil through the judiciary. This is established. Now, remember, you know, some people have merged these. I find it a, a huge hermeneutical problem to say that there's one divine institution and your support for it is two events that are 200 to 300 years apart. They cannot be the same institution. You have human government established in the Noahic Covenant uh, in verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. See, there is an accountability of government to God. And that government is to execute justice 
especially in the most serious offense, which is murder. And from that, you extrapolate all the other judicial uh, functions. Uh, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And there have to be various qualifications there to make sure you're shedding the blood of the right criminal. Uh, for And the reason is not preventative, although that may be a secondary uh, consequence. In the image of God, he made man. It is an act of blasphemy to kill or eradicate an image of God. And so that's the reason for capital capital punishment. Now, after Noah... You have his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they have children and grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and two or three hundred years go by, and instead of scattering to fill the earth, you have especially Hamites under Nimrod gather together and establish their own civilization and their own uh, city in, in uh, Babel. And we read in Genesis 11.1, 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech. This is internationalism. And uh, so the Tower of Babel is one of the original examples of the UN. And if I still can find it, I have an example of the wonders of one of our UN organizations that uh, happened today, in case you missed it. Uh, UNESCO, okay, I can't, I had this here a minute ago, and maybe I've lost it. Um, UNESCO voted today to um, uh, a resolution that there is no historical connection between the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and Judaism. Who knew? But the UN has spoken, Right. This is one reason in 2011 that the U.S., because at that time UNESCO uh, recognized a, 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 a Palestinian state, that the U.S. withdrew giving any money to, uh, to UNESCO. So we don't give any more money to UNESCO, but they made that decision. This is what happens when you have internationalism, is that people unite against God. And that is what the UN is. It has Bible verses uh, etched into the outside of the UN building in New York that are messianic verses. That we will uh, beat our uh, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and man will make war no more. That is a description from Isaiah 2 that is related to the kingdom of the Messiah, not the kingdom of the UN. And so the UN claims to be a modern uh, Messiah that will bring in world peace, and uh, all they're doing is exacerbating the problem. But this is, goes back to the Tower of Babel, and the punishment on the Tower of Babel, as they gathered together, they were really against God and establishing these uh, towers as a way of opposing God, building them to heaven. So the result was the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, And they ceased building the city. How did he scatter them? Verse 9, Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. See, once God changed the language and said, Okay, these five people are going to speak Yiddish or Hebrew, and these five people are going to speak Hindi, and these five people are going to speak Russian, these five people are going to speak English, then they had to split and go somewhere else where their small group could all understand each other and they wouldn't get in a fight with anybody else. So that establishes nations. You know, you can have a good, somebody once asked me, how, you know, with a real smart aleck tone, how can you have a government without a nation? Well, you have patriarchal governments and families and clans and tribes. Read a little history. Uh, but this is the establishment of nations. And it's reaffirmed in Acts 17.26, And he has made from one blood every nation, ethnos, of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. Well, another thing that has come out recently in the WikiLeaks of the last couple of days is that uh, in a speech to bankers in Brazil, 
Uh, Hillary Clinton, who's running for president, says that we need to have open borders and open trade, no borders. And, you know, the reality is if you don't have borders, it destroys the nation. Borders are essential to the security of a nation. And unless you have secure borders, you can't secure the nation. And without borders, there's no, no, no nation. And God has established the boundaries of their dressing. This is a divine thing. So when you want open borders, you're, you're following the footsteps of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, and you are asserting yourself against, against God. And God recognized the existence of borders and that some people are, have a right to a certain place, some people don't. For example, in laws like Deuteronomy 14.21, uh, the Israelites were told, you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates. That is somebody who's a foreigner but living in Israel. You may give it to the, foreign, to the uh, alien who is within your gates that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. That's somebody who lives outside of Israel. You can sell it to the Moabites or the Ammonites. They can eat it, but you can't, for you're a holy people to the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.20, to a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother, that's another Israelite, uh, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you. So the Lord clearly recognizes the legitimacy of different peoples and different nation states and different uh, different borders. So uh, this is crucial, and this is coming up more and more in um, what we're seeing in the current uh, presidential debate. And it's part of the whole refugee crisis that's going on in, in, uh, in Europe. And if you follow what's going on in Europe, uh, you see where we're headed in this country if we follow these policies. And these are the policies that the leftists want to impose on America, is complete open borders, which is just uh, self-destruction. And that's, that's where we're headed. So we just see all of the divine institutions under assault. We've abdicated personal responsibility because we're not responsible for anything. It's always somebody else's fault, or we're just the way we are because we're programmed by our DNA, and there's no such thing as God, no such thing as a soul. Everybody just does what is automatically uh, programmed into their makeup. Then we have... um, uh, the breakdown of marriage, because we recognize that marriage is for people of the same sex. And before long, there are already cases in the courts. We're going to have uh, uh, polygamy recognized and bestiality and all kinds of other horrible things. Are coming. It's a complete breakdown of the marriage. When that happens, you have already a breakdown in the family. When the family breaks down, the nation goes, and we're already seeing that uh, with open borders. So it's not a pretty picture. But guess what? God is still in control. That's right. When Jeremiah looked at the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. When we as believers are focused on what the plan is and what God is doing, it doesn't matter what's going on. We, I know so many of us get discouraged. You get up in the morning, you watch the news, and you get discouraged hearing about what's going on. Forget it. Get up in the morning, read your Bible. Get to know your Bible. Get to know the God of the Bible. Really get the Bible into your soul because there may come a time in our lifetime, we never thought it would happen, when the Bible may become illegal in the United States. You never know. Uh, it's going to be hard to find a Bible in Germany in another 20 years because it's going to become an Islamic state. Uh, it's just horrible what's happening in Germany. And the loss of religion, this is what happened. Germany became a secular state. Uh, it really started before World War II. It started... Uh, uh, probably in the early teens, and um, World War One exacerbated it. World War Two made it worse, and it's become uh, one of the worst uh, places in the world for open pornography. I mean, it is just like the fertility cult everywhere. I remember 15 years ago going to Kazakhstan, and uh, George Meisinger was flying through Frankfurt and had to spend the night there. And he got into his hotel room and turned on the TV, and it was nothing but rank. Uh, I mean, just not, you didn't have pornography ch- channels that were pay per view. It was just everything. All through the network was just, just rank pornography. They have rotted from the inside out. And that's exactly where we're headed. We're about 20 or 30 years behind them. Uh, but we're fast catching up 
The only hope for us personally is to be absolutely in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Word of God because that's the only source of stability and happiness and joy that we may have in this life. And that is can never be replaced, and that is not to be uh, looked down upon or belittled by anyone, because that's the joy that we take with us into all eternity. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study and to be reminded of what your word says. We look at the world system, and it's just horrible. But we know that you are in control, and this is your permissive will, and you are bringing things to a head. And we believe that perhaps tomorrow, perhaps next year, but the return of our Lord is soon, and we look forward to that. And as he delays and we see things go from bad to worse, we pray that we might keep our focus and attention upon you and have your joy in our lives so that we may be a real witness, a source of stability and hope to those who are around us as we communicate the gospel both through our lives and through our lips. And we pray that we might focus upon you and that we may constantly look to the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for us under an unjust government and unjust laws, but he was punished unjustly and died for our sins that we might have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.